0: good morning well if you happened to drop by this week and uh, you came by the auditorium or walked around the property you saw a lot of activity there was a lot of energy and a lot of teaching a lot of learning a lot of fun as kids covered our campus this week for vacation Bible school we're so thankful for people like Jill McDaniel our director and Todd Maino our children's pastor and others all of our volunteers, all of our workers that made that happen this week. We're so grateful for them. And if you would like a taste of what happened this week, we're going to invite you to come back tonight, 6 o'clock, right here, and you'll get to experience something of what the kids did this week. And then afterwards, we're going to have some pizza and some fun out of doors. And so you'll hear more about that at the end of service. Please take your Bibles and turn to the letter of Colossians, chapter 3 we've been studying there for many weeks now and in chapters 1 and 2 we had seen what a Christian is our theme for our study is real Christianity and what is a real Christian What's someone whom God has changed and God has transformed and because God has done these things in our life how do we live And so chapters three and four the practical application of how we are to live out who we truly are in Christ. And so this section is called Getting Real. And today, the title of this morning's uh, message is Putting On or Put On Godly Habits. Put On Godly Habits. Before we start our study this morning, I'd like us to pray together. Let's pray. Our Father, whenever we come to worship you, We want all of our attention and our heart, our mind, our longings, our dreams, everything that we are, our full attention, to be focused on you. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take your word and you would apply it to our lives in a way that is supernatural, a way that is beyond human description, would you cause it to awaken in us a desire to be like Christ? For we ask it in His name. Amen. When we began studying this passage of Scripture in chapter 3, in verse 1, we saw immediately that something was supposed to happen because we had become Christians if we had been raised with Christ we were to seek something very different than the rest of the world in fact we weren't to seek anything on the world we were to seek things above where Christ is and our heart and our passion and the drive of our life is to be focused on Christ and that should lead to transformation. And we saw immediately that the challenge or the problem that you and I have is is with sinful desire. Now, sinful desire is something that every person deals with, Christian and non-Christian alike. I want you to see this graphic that we looked at last week of depicting a person's life without Christ. Go ahead and pull that up. There it comes. Before Christ. Before Christ, sinful desire, which is inherited from generation to generation, from Adam all the way down to you and me, sinful desire lives inside you and me, and without Christ, it is in charge. It's in control. And when you come to Christ, go ahead and bring up the next picture. When you come to Christ... Now something happens that changes your relationship to sinful desire. That when a person is changed by God, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside that person, the Holy Spirit now creates in you the desires of God. And now you have two sets of desires living inside of you. When a person comes to Christ sinful desire that was in charge is now put in a different place it is no longer master literally the bible says that in romans 6 sin is not your master the holy spirit is in you to be for you all that jesus would be if he were here in person he is there to change you and guide you with a whole new set of desires but you have to choose who you're going to to obey in your life. You have a choice to make. And so he says in verse 5 that you and I are to put to death our members which are on the earth. Now members refer to body parts and we already studied this section but, but he's not talking about your physical body. He's talking about the sinful desires that live in your body. How do you know that? Because in verse 5 he names it. He says put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Those aren't body parts, but they're a part of you. And you inherited that from your old life without Christ. Now, what are you to do with that? He says, put it to death. Mortify it. Cause it to die. Well, how do you make something die? One of our conclusions was that you cause something to die by cutting off its life-giving stream. You starve it. We called it not feeding the sin monster. And what you see, where you go, the people you hang with, the things that you do, either feed the sin monster or starve the feed monster, the sin monster. And so he says you've got to put that to death. You've got to starve it. And then, last week we saw that he says you have to put off what we called sin habits. We're to put off all these, he says, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, he says. And and we saw that he starts talking about sin habits in much of the way that you and I talk about clothes. Clothes. And so he says you're going to have to put it off. And we discussed last week how you do that. But it's really half the story. Because when you come to the passage that we're going to look at today, he says you're also supposed to be not only putting off sin habits, but putting off new Godly habits, and he describes them. We're going to see it in just a moment. Tender mercies and so forth. And so in order to overcome sin habits, you cannot simply be a Christian who is against certain things in your life or putting down certain behaviors and sinful activity. You also have to be putting on something, for something. The reason we are against sin Is because it is not the way that God has called us to live, and there's a way that he's called us to live. And so we come now to verse um, 12, and this is what he describes. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I want you to imagine driving down the road and you stop at a church. You walk in that church and there's every kind of of sinful behavior going on fornication uncleanness passion evil desire these desires are giving rise to habits of anger wrath malice blasphemy evil speaking and so forth you say this church doesn't feel like a lot of fun and it's not some churches are all about that and if it's not expressing that behavior it's always talking about that always what they're against and then you drive down the road a little bit further you come to a church and you walk in the door and people greet you warmly and they're smiling and it's Sunday morning and you have a great experience there and you feel the warmth and you feel the heat of God's love but then something unusual happens maybe that's never happened to you before On Sunday afternoon, someone comes by and expresses that love. Monday, someone calls you. Tuesday, someone calls you. Someone invites you over to dinner Tuesday night, and you go over from that church. And this continues, and this continues, and suddenly you realize, this is a different kind of church. Now, which church would you like to go to? I know the one I'd like to go to. What are you doing when you're putting on a new habit You are becoming like Christ we could talk about the specifics and we're going to touch on them briefly of these different habits but each of these habits is nothing more than expression of the character of Jesus Christ who lives in you by his Holy Spirit and so when we talk about putting on a new habit we're talking about putting on Christ this is what Paul meant in Romans 13 verse 14 but put on The Lord Jesus Christ. That sums up all the things that we're talking about learning to be and do in our life, in our walk with God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now this verse helps us understand how we put on habits. It gives us clues for how we put on the new. And it does it in an interesting way. He says, don't make provision for the flesh... To fulfill its lust. Now, remember that diagram. Lust would be a way of describing sinful desire. And he's writing to Christians. He's telling Christians to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And what's happening when he talks about lust, he's talking about sinful desire. And then he says, don't make provision for the flesh. The flesh represents everything in you that wants to do life without God. And it's called the flesh because it lives in your body, your physical form. It does not go with you when you die as a believer. You leave all of that here. And so sinful desire is not going to go with you to heaven if you know Christ. Christ. And so he uses the word flesh, and it's one of the ways that Paul defines what sinful desire is doing inside of you. And he says this, he says, make no provision for that flesh. Now to make provision means to take care of something, to nurture it, to think about, okay, I have this sinful desire, and you make plans related to that sinful desire. I'm going to do this, I'm going to plan this occasion. I'm going to plan this event. I'm going to plan this opportunity so that I can experience this sinful desire. He says, don't do that. Don't make provision for the flesh because every time you do that, you reinforce a sin habit. In contrast to that, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make provision. If you reverse it out, make provision for that. Be thoughtful about that Be intentional about that. Putting on Christ. Make a plan. How do you do it? There are at least four ways, practices, that you can use to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is the word communion. Communion. And by the word communion, I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper. I'm talking about time alone with your father, where it's just you and him and nobody else. The, Jesus, the Lord Jesus did this. In Luke chapter 5, you can look it up later, but in Luke 5, the larger the crowds became, the busier he became, the more demands that were placed on him. It says the more he withdrew into the wilderness the more he spent time alone with his Father. And so communion becomes the foundation. He wanted to be with the Father. He wanted to experience his presence. He wanted to hear the Father's heart. He wanted to be able to unburden his heart in the presence of the Father. That is absolutely critical if you're going to put on Christ. Look at the words that he uses. In verse 12, therefore is the elect of God holy and beloved. It's the elect of God holy and beloved. What is Paul saying? First, he chose me. He's saying he chose me. He refers to you and me, those of us that know Christ, as the elect of God. Now, I don't have the time, I wish we did, to explore The doctrine, the biblical doctrine of election. But let me just give you what I want you to understand about election as it applies to the concept of communion with God. The election, the word election, is based on a verb to elect. And it's got two basic ideas captured in that word. The first is this it means to choose or select something out of a group. And he's saying that he chose you out of a group. You are the elect or chosen of God. The other meaning of the word for election on the verb side means to choose something for yourself. Not just out of a group, but to choose something for yourself. God chose you. He wants you. Paul's also saying that he has made me completely his. He uses the word holy. You'll remember if you go back to the very first message when we began studying Colossians, that he talks about the saints who are at Colossae, the holy ones. It's the same word that's being used here. And, And it's not describing someone who is perfect. It's not describing someone who is pure. It's describing someone who is set apart and belongs to God. And so he has set you apart for himself. You are his. Paul is also saying that he has been and always will be delighted with me. He uses the word beloved. There's two aspects to this word I want you to know. It's it's very personal. When he uses the word beloved, beloved, It's in the passive voice, meaning that you're doing nothing except being loved. You're not producing that action. You're not causing that action. You're simply receiving that action. And God looks at you, child of God, and He says, You are my beloved. And so it's extremely personal. His love for you is also final. Again, in the original language, there's a tense called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense describes an action in the past that is complete, absolutely finished, will not be undone, and the consequences of that finished act continue on into the present moment. You are beloved like that. He loved you in the past. It is a fact. It is never to be questioned. It is final. It is settled. It is God's posture Towards you and towards me, you are his beloved. And then Paul's saying that the more I am with him, the more I will become like him. Because he starts off his discussion of putting on godly habits with this statement. He said, "Listen, people, you are the elect of God. You're holy, you're beloved. So put on these things. Because of who you are, because of God and his love for you. And that's why I'm starting with this word communion. You know, changing a habit is hard. Have you ever noticed that? And as a believer, we are made for that. You are wired to change. You are made for change. We are all about change. Change is our business. Because he came to transform us into his own likeness. That is your destiny. That is his purpose for you. And so when it gets hard, and when you and I mess up, we need some sufficient level of motivation to keep going. And he's saying that motivation is him. Your relationship to him, your communion with him will sustain you in the process and the journey of change. So if we're going to put on the character of Christ, communion is the first thing that we need to do. But there's a second practice, and that's the word meditation. Meditation. The Bible does not talk about Bible reading. It talks much more about Bible meditation. Look at what he says in verse 12. Put on tender mercies. Literally, that word refers to the intestines. The seat of affection in that day and time was not the heart. It was the small intestines, bowels of mercy. I love you with all my bows. It loses something in translation, doesn't it? And yet, he says to put that on, to put on tender mercies. And he's describing something that's visceral. When Jesus in Matthew 9 looked at the masses, it says he was moved with compassion for them. He felt something, same word. And it stands to reason, if you and I are putting on Christ, that we're going to be moved by the things that move Christ. And he says, put on tender mercies. I wish we could spend time with each of these words, but just, let me just touch on them. Kindness describes basic goodness or a generous spirit. Humility. This is an attitude that I am nothing more than just a man among men. Not high minded, not elevating self. One of the best ways to think of humility is in the negative, not arrogant. Not arrogant. Meekness. Meekness describes someone that could take your head off but chooses not to. It is chosen gentleness. It's chosen gentleness. Decisive, long suffering. Is patience and calm in the face of provocation. Someone's pushing you. Someone's pushing you. Someone's pushing you, and you continue not to react. Long suffering. Bearing with one another. This is the basic idea. There is to hold yourself up straight, and this is the person who holds up holds themselves up straight in relationship to people. And you know you can't do this by yourself, by the way. You can't bear with one another by yourself. That's why he invented church. That's why we have Bible study groups, because you're going to go in there. You're not only going to learn the Bible, but you're going to grow because there are going to be people in there that you have to suffer along with and you have to bear with. And he talks about forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, and so a complaint means you've got a legitimate reason to be upset. And so if I've got a complaint, what's he say to do? He says, forgive. It means cancel the debt. It means pardon for the crime. It means release from obligation. Forgive. Now, some of you are thinking, I've tried changing before. I've tried doing these things, tender mercies and kindness. I've tried tried humility. I've tried meekness. I've tried those things, and I can't do it. Look, meditation and the next word we're going to look at in just a moment are the words you need. I want to share with you a couple of verses. These are not on the screen, but you may want to just jot them down. Joshua 1.8. God told Joshua, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If you're failing at something, what does he say? He says, take the Word of God. Meditate on it day and night. You say, well, i got to sleep. Day and night. Psalm 1 makes it even more clear. In verses one to three, he says, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the godly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord." This is a man who's breaking sin habits. This is a man who's breaking sinful desires. He's not in that crowd. He's in a whole different place. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. There's an abundance that he receives. The rest of the world may not see it. The rest of the world may not get it. But because he is planted by the stream of life, in the very presence of God, he is alive. And he is thriving. And he bears fruit. And his leaf does not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. What's the common denominator? Meditation. Meditation is not emptying your mind. It is filling your mind with the Word of God. How do you do that? First, find the burning passage on that habit. Find the burning passage on that habit. You say, what do you mean by a burning passage? Two disciples on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead are walking on a road to Emmaus when a man appears to them, they don't recognize him. But they begin talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And this man explains the truth to them. And then when they recognize that it is Jesus, the risen Jesus, he disappears. And this is what they say in, uh, in Luke 24, verse 32. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Burns. There are times as you're reading God's Word that it may be a word, it may be a phrase, it may be a passage, it may be a story, but it's like the Holy Spirit takes a massive spotlight and He lights up that passage. And as you are wrestling with putting off a sin habit and putting on a godly habit You need to know that there is a passage, there's a word that God has for you. And when you read that that passage, you will know it. Because it will be life to you. It will be breath to you. It will be healing to your heart. And you will know that this is what needs to happen to me. Find the burning passage. Secondly, rely on the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life. Rely the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life. I've not always been the pleasant person that I am today. And my default sinful desire response to many things is anger. It is. And so in dealing with other Christians, Sometimes you and I will feel anger. Does that happen to anybody else? No, don't raise your hand. And wrestling with that, knowing that that was not the heart of God. That was not how he wanted me to respond. He gave me a burning passage. Now, when I say he, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit led me to a passage of Scripture. Here's what it was, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. Here's what it was. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel, Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And then here's the phrase, here's the burning phrase. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. I still remember vividly the first time the Holy Spirit applied that to my heart. A man came in my office, he was so angry. I know it's hard to believe. But he was so angry, he could hardly form the words. He was was slobbering mad. You know what that is? I mean, spittle, just angry. And as he unloaded, these words came to mind. And a phrase that still comes to mind to this day. Gently instruct those who oppose you. Gently instruct those who oppose you. Gently instruct those who oppose you. And so he was so mad. And I looked at him and I said, I won't call his real name. He's not around anymore. He's with the Lord. I said, why don't you have a seat? Just like that. And I said, why don't you have a seat? He was stunned. He sat down and I said, how... How are you doing today? And he got angry again. I said, hold on just a moment. I said, I said, would you like a cup of coffee? And he said, no. I said, I do. I don't even drink coffee. And I left. I said, Oh God, help him. Help me. Because Lord, I want to hurt him. And I just went outside. I didn't get any coffee. I hate coffee. <laughs> and I came back in, and he had calmed down. I said, how's your wife doing? His wife, our families were friends. I said, how's your wife doing? How's your son? How's your son doing? And I just kept talking to him. Slowly, the thermostat came down. Slowly, it came down. And we finally got to a place where we could talk, and we could pray together in the same conversation. Gently instruct those who oppose you. Rely on the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life. Thirdly, learn what it means. Learn what the the words mean. Words have meaning, and when you read the words on a page, find out what they mean. You have resources in your Bible. You have resources sometimes on your shelf, a concordance. You have a Bible dictionary. We have resources in our library. You've got the internet. Be careful. You have have pastors. You have Sunday school teachers. You have older Christians. You have ways of finding out what do the words mean. And then finally, commit it to memory for the moment of decision. When that person comes into your life and you're tempted to respond with a sinful desire That wants to create a habit, then you need at that moment to be able to recall the Word of God in the face of that temptation. I'm not saying you need to quote it to that person, but you need to be able to recall it. Write it on a card. Keep it in your pocket. Put it on your visor of your car. Put it on your mirror at home, but you need to commit it to memory. Now you say, Pastor, why is that important? Because Jesus did it. If you look at Jesus battling the devil, battling temptation in Matthew 4, every time he responds to the temptation, he says, It is written. It is written. It is written. And if the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could not deal with the temptation of sin apart from the Word of God, how can I do less? Meditation. The third word is imitation. Imitation. In verse 13, he says, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love. And who is the epitome of love? Christ. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. To form a new habit involves imitation in two ways. The first one involves the imitation of Christ. The imitation of Christ. In verse 13, he says, How do you forgive? Forgive like Christ forgave. Do it the way he did it. How did he do it? He absorbed the sin on himself. He took it to the cross. He canceled the debt. He released the sinner from their obligation. He reconciled them to himself. So Christ is our ultimate bottle, our ultimate example. But when I talk about imitation, it's not just reading the Gospels, although that is absolutely vital, and I gave you some homework last week. If you're wrestling with a sin habit or you're wanting to grow in a godly habit, is to read a gospel. Pick one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read it. Ask those questions. What did Jesus do? What did he say to do? What is he saying for me to do? Just read the gospels that way, and you'll begin to fix your eyes on Christ so that you can imitate him. But not only Christ, but you and I need to learn to imitate spiritual elders. The imitation of spiritual elders When Gail and I graduated college, we were assigned by the Home Mission Board to Southern California, and we served there as church planters. And the supervisor that God gave us became not just a brother in the Lord, but a father in the Lord to me. And his name was Bob. And Bob took great delight in teaching me things. I remember the first time a transient, someone who needed assistance, came by the church and knocked on the door and he could see from an upper window that person standing by the door and he comes by my office and he says have you ever dealt with a transient before i said no and then he said his favorite statement didn't they teach you anything in college he said well today is your lucky day we have one at the door take care of him <laughs> And then we would talk about it afterwards. He taught me how to preach through a translator much the same way. We had five different language missions that we were taking care of. Thai and Lao and Hmong and Hungarian and Hispanic, just different groups. And sometimes I needed someone to preach. And he said, have you preached to a translator before? And I said, no, sir. He said, didn't they teach you anything at college? See, this is how it worked. On a grander scale, he taught us how to live by faith and walk by faith. And I watched him walk with God. I watched his prayer life. I watched how he dealt with people. And to the extent that he was like Christ, I had a visual in front of me to learn how to walk with Christ. This is what the apostle says in... um, in 1 Corinthians 11, one, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. This is the heart of the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Now, if he had stopped there, teaching, imparting information, that would be easy. But he didn't stop there, did he? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What does that mean? It's not just enough to teach people what the truth is. It is that we are called to show them how to live that truth, to observe, to do the things that Jesus taught us to do. Paul applied it in this way. He told Timothy, the things that you've received from me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so, modeling, demonstrating, showing the life of Christ. And so for you and me, a spiritual elder might be a pastor. It might be a Sunday school teacher. It may simply be a Christian friend who you know at one time wrestled with these things and has wrestled with it and learned how to put off the sin habit and how to put on the godly new habit. And you may simply spend time with that person and say, tell me about your journey how you became a man like that how you became a woman like that how did that happen and then finally the last word is repetition repetition in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 Paul writes exercise yourself toward godliness he uses the imagery of an athlete in training To describe this process of growth in Christ likeness what are his points there's a training goal a training goal to live my life before God at all times to exercise yourself toward godliness I've talked about this word before you need to understand what godliness is the word godliness means literally Good standing or to stand well. Sabao is to stand, the part in the front of the word. You means good or well. It means to stand well. And so someone who is godly stands well. But what does it mean? It means with reference to somebody else. The word godly applied to someone who understood how to behave, how to act in front of someone of great importance or authority or power. When the President of the United States comes in, I may be a Democrat, I may be a Republican, but we should all stand. And godliness is knowing how to stand and properly respond to the presence of someone else. And in this case, it is God. And the godly man and the godly woman is simply a person who knows how to do life in the presence of God. Always. That's the goal of our training. There's a training philosophy. Every choice to act reinforces a sin habit or a godly habit. You have sinful desires inside of you. Remember, you have two sets you have sinful desire. From your old life, it's still there. And if you say yes to it, you're going to form a sinful habit. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years. You keep saying yes to a sin habit, you're going to form, excuse me, a sinful desire, you're going to form a sin habit. And you also have the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. It is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. It is the Holy Spirit of God, and He is raising up in you godly desires, a way to live in the presence of God. And so the training philosophy is that what I am attempting to do is to make sure that when that moment of decision comes, that I take my choice to act, and I make sure that I leverage it on the side of the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh, Paul writes in Galatians. It's a choice you have. Every moment, every moment, when you're responding to someone, dealing with someone, your thought life, you have an opportunity to make that choice. And so here's the training method. Exercise yourself. He says work hard at it. Do it repeatedly. That's what athletes do to get better. To say yes to the Holy Spirit every time. Say yes to the Holy Spirit every time. Every yes matters. Every time you say no to a sin habit. It's not enough to just say no. You need to be saying yes to a godly habit, whatever it is. And every yes matters. Every time you say yes to the Holy Spirit, you are on your way to forming Christ in your life. Every yes is a victory. Every yes is a result of a choice that you make. Every yes is a yes to the Holy Spirit of God who's prompting you, and there's an impulse to do something that pleases Him. Put on godly habits. At this moment in our service, we're going to have a time of response, of worship. How has He spoken to you? If you have never received Christ... You are not a son or a daughter of God. To those that receive him, he says in John 1 that he gives the right or the power to become the sons of God or the children of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came into this world to rescue you from the enemies of your soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And on the cross, he defeated those enemies. And when a person puts their trust in that work of Christ, the Bible says that he takes your spirit and the spirit of Christ and he unites you and you are a new creature, a new creation in Christ. That's where the new desires begin to come. But it begins as you come and you turn away from your life without God you turn away from sinful desire from sin habits and you turn away from a life without him and you turn to him and you say save me rescue me I want to be saved I choose Christ as my Lord and if you have never trusted Christ then your master is sin and you'll never win you may change on the outside, stifle it, but you know what's going on on the inside. Is it time for you to come and put your trust in Christ? When we stand and sing, there'll be pastors, and I'll be standing here as well, but we'll all be standing here at the front. We'll be here to counsel with you. We'll share scripture with you. We'll answer your questions. You may just need to pray. You can bow your head in the pew to say, oh, God, I want to be like Christ. And I'm tired of living in defeat. And I want to learn, Lord, how to put on Christ. You may want to come and just kneel at the front around the paraphernalia that we have here and pray for yourself or someone else if there's a burden on your heart. Start that process of communion right now. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power It's clarity, and we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to your people, that you would speak to us in these moments, and would you draw us closer, that much closer, to that life, the promise of new life. Enable each of us to say yes to you in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.